Greetings from a now vagabond. I am no longer a pastor as of uh, uh, February 28th. Uh, we served the First Presbyterian Church in Hinckley for 32 years. And um, on uh, February 28th, we brought a 43 years of full-time pastoral work to a conclusion. But we are now enjoying... Um, uh, visiting and having the opportunity to share the Word of God with other churches as well. And uh, let me just say about Bethany, uh, in, the, in the few short years we have known you, uh, you folks have been a real blessing to us. Our context of uh, knowing Bethany is through the Common Slaves uh, Fellowship of uh, ministers of like mind and gospel truth. And... Um, I've had the opportunity to preach from this pulpit or lectern before uh, at one of those events, and we probably have worshipped uh, in those events here uh, three or four or maybe five times. So um, we feel like we've gotten to know a number of you, get to know Pastor Mark and uh, some of your elders, and um, your fellowship has always been sweet, and I think that really speaks of the good pastoral leadership that Mark provides, as well as the elders who um, also oversee this church. However, most importantly, we have enjoyed eating here on those numbers of occasions, too. So not only have we been fed by the word of life, but we have been literally fed with, with some of the wonderful dinners that have been hosted by uh, the folks of this congregation. I, I thank you for inviting me. I thank Pastor Mark for giving me the opportunity to share the Word of God today. I have one other interesting thing that I, I hope will be seen as forming a, a connection between my former congregation and this one. First Presbyterian Church, just, well, I should say, uh, our Siouxlands Presbytery, of which our church is a member, that's the regional uh, grouping of churches in, in a Presbyterian world, uh, last week examined and uh, approved and will be uh, uh, and soon ordain uh, Pastor Dan Brenzel. Anybody familiar with that name? Few few folks. Uh, he goes back to this church when it was in its free church days, and uh, he is now going to be following me in Hinckley. And I and I, I think that'll I hope that'll form a, a, a sweet connection between our two uh, congregations that are that are similar in so many ways, uh, and the differences are of course negligible in the matters of government and and so forth. But um, we stand uh, faithful in the gospel as you do, and for that we rejoice. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Psalm three. One thing I have determined in my days of retirement, if that's what one, it can be properly called, is to preach through the Psalms. I've never done this before in the context of any of the churches I've served. Uh, I have preached on various Psalms and, and short little mini-series on the Psalms, but I never started it, never started at one and went all the way through. So you can kind of count now where I'm at in the opportunities the Lord has given me since that day. I'm up to number three, and um, I have a, a number of engagements uh, ahead of me as well, and I will just take them in order. 
But Psalm 3, to me, is one that I have not spent a lot of time or given a lot of attention to uh, until my preparations for this week. And I've just been deeply encouraged and blessed by by it. Uh, Truly, I think it's a psalm for our times, and I hope you will agree with me in that uh, when when we are are done. Psalm 3. Uh, Before we look at that together, let us um, look to the Lord in prayer. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name be glory and honor. For, Lord, you have spoken to us through your word. You have given light to our eyes, and you have poured in our heart your Holy Spirit and the light that he offers that give us the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of your beloved Son, Jesus. And we pray that you would do that for us, even in this hour. We pray in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Reading at Psalm 1, or Psalm 3, I should say, verse 1, we will begin with the superscription, as it is called, because that is part of the text. A Psalm of David. When he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are your foes, or how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Psalm 3 is the first of 14 psalms in the Psalter that are linked to specific historical episodes. And usually those specific episodes are mentioned in the superscription that lies at the top, something that we often overlook. The psalm's title tells us of its author, David, who composed explicitly as many as half the psalms we know of, and uh, probably more. It also tells us of the origin of the psalm, the context, and when he that is when he fled from the coup that was instigated by his son. In particular, the psalm reflects David's state of mind and heart during these disappointing and troubling days. They reflect his thoughts when he escaped Jerusalem during this rebellion that was instigated by Absalom. The context of this psalm is found in 2 Samuel verses, uh, or chapter 15, verses uh, 15 to the end of the chapter and into 16 as well. 
something you may want to read over more in depth when you get home this afternoon. The scene is described, the scene described is, is David's departure from the city, his flight, as it were, his exodus from the city in light of the uh, pressing of the, uh, the troops of Absalom. It's described as an orderly, methodical, and yet hasty uh, departure from the city. And it recounts betrayals, Ahithophel, a uh, trusted counselor, uh, betrays him and goes to the other side. Political expediency, no doubt. There is confusion in reporting. Mephibosheth, uh, a man who David showed great grace to, a son of, of um, Saul's son Jonathan, and for his, his sake, uh, brought him into his court, appears to have played the turncoat, at least by report. Later, that is, um, uh, that is uh, corrected. But there's disappointment. As David leaves the city, we see him weeping deeply, and all who follow him as well. And then he has to endure the indignity of the curses of Shimei, who stands on the hillside hurling insults and curses on David. And yet through all of this, we find David departing the city, showing, uh, and despite his deeply wounded heart, showing great restraint in his reaction. One of his colleagues suggested that maybe they should take off, he could go over and instantly take off Shimei's head and put an end to all the cursing. And David said, no, uh, God has raised him up to humble me. We see something of David's heart in his response that is not in retaliation. Now, I want to mention before we consider this more, uh, two uh, characteristics of this psalm. Now, there's many different ways in which psalms can be categorized. Um, but one simple distinction to look for when you're reading the psalms is, is it a corporate psalm or a personal psalm? This is a personal psalm. In other words, the pronouns I and me and my are, are what drive this psalm. Other psalms are corporate psalms, we and us. In other words, corporate psalms have been designed for corporate worship among God's people. And many of those psalms, perhaps all of them in one way or another, um, are sung by many churches today. Uh, after all, the Psalter is the hymn book of the church, is it not? It is, but this is a personal psalm, and it reflects personal prayer, personal devotion, person, the personal lifting up of one's own heart to the Lord to enable them to face the days, us to face the days that we are living through. The other thing that is, the other characteristic is that it's a mourning psalm. Mourning as in uh, A.M. It's a an awakening psalm. It's the psalm that is, is prayed at the beginning of the day. And, uh, and, and this is an interesting uh, um, 
An interesting idea. It is, it is built upon the preceding two Psalms, the wisdom Psalm. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, uh, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of, of the scornful. But here is one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It's also followed by the Psalm that reminds us who is on the throne. And when the nations rage and throw off what they believe as the restraining chains that God uh, uh, puts upon uh, sinful human beings, those who attempt such things, we are told, the Lord enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at him. In fact, he has enthroned his Christ, his Messiah, on the throne. And so when David prays this psalm, when he sings this psalm in the morning, he is finding encouragement as to what precedes it. It also anticipates Psalm 4 and 5, which are prayers for the evening and prayers for the morning. And it sets something of the tradition that we find in Protestant circles, and particularly Reformed circles, um, of the morning service and the evening service. That the day, uh, the Lord's Day begins in the morning with prayer, such as we are doing, and uh, the tradition of an evening service where uh, the day is ended with uh, with prayer as well. So, so as not to be overwhelmed by this present darkness, both in the day of David or in our own day, so as not to be overwhelmed by this present darkness, this psalm calls us to rest in the God who reigns supreme and will, in the end, defeat all his and our enemies. I quote there the latter part, the uh, shorter catechism question that speaks of uh, how is Christ a king? He rules and defends us and defeats all his and our enemies. That's what this psalm is driving us to think on. And so when we do that, let's look at this psalm as it is treated uh, in two parts. The result, the reality of dark thoughts and the recounting of precious memories. Have you ever had dark thoughts? I have. These are days of dark thoughts. We get a steady diet of dark thoughts that can very easily overwhelm us when we see all the godless changes that are taking place in our world. David says in verses 1 and 2, reflecting the propensity of such changes to bring dark thoughts. Oh Lord, how many are my foes, he says. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Not only is there uh, seemingly overwhelming numbers of those who oppose the cause of Christ's kingdom, but there are lies told that, that uh, whittle away at our resolve to stand firm for him. Now, in Second Samuel 15, it records the scene of David's flight from Jerusalem amid Absalom's rebellion. And the following is described 
uh, there, and you may read this later on uh, when you go home. We see their hasty departure, starting at verses 13 to 17. And then we see scenes of loyalty, honor, and kindness on the part of uh, David's uh, uh, loyalists, as it were, and on the part of David himself, um, uh, mediating a, a response of restraint because he knows he doesn't want this to develop in ultimately in a civil war. And then we see scenes of sorrow, betrayal, and yes, even countermeasures. He, uh, David assigns, uh, some of his, uh, counselors if to, to return and, and to, um, thwart the counsel of Ahithophel who was to, uh, who had betrayed him. Uh, perhaps this is David's darkest hour in all of his life. It's, it's darker than the time, than from the season when he fled from Saul, if you think about it. David, many of the Psalms are born out of David's flight from Saul. But here, this one involves his own beloved son. And it, it, it involves those who were at one time loyalists that he had trained and cultivated. And now many are turning against him. This is probably David's darkest hour. His, his life, his world is literally collapsing around him. The psalm rep- represents something of a kind of evil madness that has taken over popular sentiment as a deception, as deception and intrigue begin to rule the city. Sound familiar? Psalm 3 notes the groundswell of this opposition. Many are rising against me. And it notes the vicious and fallacious accusations and false messages that are being spoken into his heart and his mind. There is no salvation for him. There's no hope. If there is no God, there is no hope. Why are we even here on Sunday morning if there is no God and no hope? And that is what David is having to contend with. It speaks of the many. Who who are the many? Well, there is Ahithophel, as I mentioned, a trusted advisor who's among the conspirators. There is Mephibosheth, the one, the crippled son of Jonathan, whom David had shown great grace, the kind of grace that we can only see that Christ showed to us, where he took one who was crippled and made him a member of his kingdom and household and set him at the table, his table, all the days of his life. And then it is reported to him that this one has traded, has played the traitor. That proves not to be ultimately the case. But this is what David is thinking at this time. And then there's Shimei that I've mentioned from the house of Saul, who barrages him with incessant curses and false messages. And of course, then there's Absalom, his own precious son, who would have him killed and perhaps even do it with his own hand if he could. 
Second Samuel fifteen thirteen says, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And then when we see David, David in verse 30 departing the city, we get the sense of emotion and pathos. But David went up, uh, went up the ascent of Mount of uh, the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads in a show of mourning. And they went up weeping as they went. It is a tragic scene, a terrible scene. You can get the depth of feeling is that it is here. The reality of dark thoughts that are brought about by such circumstances of, as the, the world that we have come to love is crumbling around him or us even today. Now what do we see of David? In this particular psalm, we don't see him succumbing to these dark thoughts. We see, rather, him rising above them. This is his darkest hour. But how does he handle it? Not with revenge, not with retaliation, not with the casting of aspersions of like kind to those who are insulting him and berating him. How does one survive? In such a world as this. Well David survived by remembering who God is. By remembering who God is. And that's that's how we will survive these uncertain times. By remembering who God is. And he recounts him. He mentions the things that he knows about God. You are my shield, O Lord. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. I love that. I think there's a chorus about that uses that very phrase. David is no hangdog hangdog, uh, defeatist. David's head is lifted up to where his glory lies. The one who is his shield and his buckler. All is not lost, David recognizes. David knows God and he prays to God. He knows God and he prays to God. Your pastors and your elders teach you to know God and to pray to God. And this, in doing this, they are modeling and teaching how we can face such Devastating days as David is experiencing. He knows God personally. Not as an idea, but personally. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. He is our protector. He he who watches over Israel, we are told, will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is a shield. The Lord is his glory. All his heart is bound up in in seeing and knowing God. And as we read on in scripture, uh, we recognize that the glory of God is ultimately revealed in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.6 
The one who said, let light shine out of darkness, who created the world, created the light, also offers us the light of his glory in the face of Jesus. He knows tears, but he is not a defeatist. He prays out loud and recounts God's faithful responses. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and my encourager, the lifter up of my head. I cried aloud to you, O Lord. Prayed out loud. And he answered me from his holy hill. That's an interesting phrase because the holy hill reveals to reveals the the uh, uh, the the capital city the place where eventually the temple was built it was the the place that God had chosen for his name to dwell and even though it had been it had been uh, captured by insurrectionists and interlopers it was still God's holy hill and in the end God would speak from it. Days such as these are not days to despair. Jerusalem's throne is not Absalom's throne, and it's not even David's throne. It is God's throne from where he spoke to his people. And it's not that of the rebel or the interloper. The earth is the Lord's, And the fullness thereof, the world, and all those who dwell therein. So David recounts these precious memories, the first of which is remembering who God is in the days of dark thoughts. But he also is found resting in what God does. Remembering who God is and resting in what God does. And here we see an expression of remarkable trust. I love this verse, or this pair. Verses 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I lay down and slept. Can you sleep at night? I lay down and slept. I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. In this remarkable trust, we see David emulating Elijah, who stood before the prophets of Baal. And was perhaps one of a thousand, at least among the prophets, one of four hundred. And he alone was the one who called down fire from heaven by merely speaking to God. And we see David here exhibiting that same kind of trust. That kind of trust in the Lord that doesn't trouble us at night. Because we know the world is in his hands. The old gospel song says he's got the whole world in his hands. Stonewall Jackson was asked one day why he could appear so 
steadfast, like a stone wall in battle and on a battlefield. And Stonewall Jackson responded, My religion teaches me that I am as safe in battle as I am in bed. You believe that? That's true. We are as safe in the, in the most troubled of worlds as we are in the quietness of our own home. Because our hands are in, our lives are in the hands of a living, powerful, loving God who knows our names, who owns us through Christ. The Bible tells us in the New Testament we are called upon to be anxious for nothing, but by everything, prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known unto God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I can't help but think that Paul had this very psalm in mind, this very verse in mind, when he spoke those words, I lie down, I lay down and slept, I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. This is setting the tradition of that morning prayer, a way to start your day, which will often establish what happens throughout. Now, there's one more precious memory, a precious remedy, I should say, that David mentions. He, We see him remembering who God is. We see him resting in what God does. And we see him recalling how God saves. The world will tell us there is no salvation in God. The world will tell us there is no God who saves. The world will seek to defeat us by its lies, its deceptions, its allurements. David prayed, arise, O Lord. And show your hand. In short, he defeats, God defeats his enemies and he delivers his people. Now, however, David doesn't merely pray for peace of mind, but rather he prays for victory over the enemies of God's kingdom. He's not merely praying for protection, but he's praying for the defeat of those who oppose God. And he does it in very graphic terms, terms that are so graphic that many traditions in the Christian church won't even pray these psalms anymore because they think it's somehow beyond the Lord to administer justice and judgment on those who oppose him. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. David knows where his salvation lies. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. And you break the teeth of the wicked. There are many of these so-called imprecations or the praying of curses upon the enemies. We're reminded when we pray such things of what the Lord said when he said, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. This is entirely proper 
and explainable for us to pray such things. Because when we are praying, we are acknowledging that such judgment does, is not in our hands, but it's in the hands of an all-powerful and just God. We don't take vengeance upon ourselves. We are acknowledging that it is in the hands of the Lord. We don't live in revenge, in the spirit of revenge and retaliation. Rather, we pray for our enemies. We pray for their salvation. But we pray, too, that God would bring his justice upon those who persist in their wickedness. And God will do it in his own way and in his own day. And it's not for ours to repay. The imprecation, then, is not hard to understand. Rather than taking matters into his own hands here, David leaves justice in the hands of the Lord. We leave the business up to whom it belongs. He is alone the just punisher and judge. And then he concludes this psalm with a, a, um, a wonderful reminder and statement that is echoed uh, 200 years later by Jonah as he prayed from the belly of the great fish. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Well, that's about as positive as it gets. It's a wonderful prayer to pray in the morning to remind us of such things. To remember who God is. To rest in what God does. And to recall how God saves. Rather, we are, we rather than, uh, rather than taking matters into our own hands, we rather acknowledge that salvation belongs to the Lord. And this lies at the heart of what we would call reformed soteriology or the way the doctrine of salvation as has been explained and developed in reformed circles such as ours. It's all found in your Baptist confession in such wonderful elucidation that is well worth pondering and meditating on. The doctrines of union with Christ, of of justification, effectual calling, justification, adoption, sanctification, and the like. These, these rich teachings of Scripture remind us, in summary, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not in our hands. It's not for us to accomplish. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's all in Christ. I love the hymns that you are singing today. They, all about Christ. In fact, as I was as I was singing with you and singing with them, uh, so many thoughts from this prayer and this message just poured into my life. I, I wanted to write some of them down to share with you. That one hymn, "The Blood of Jesus," speaks for me. Do you sing that very often here? What a lovely hymn. Well, that's what this psalm is praying. There's so many parallels between that. Uh, 
Put that hymn and this psalm side by side and think on it. Think on it. Patrick Henry Reardon, in his commentary, Christ in the Psalms, not from our tradition, he's actually Eastern Orthodox, gave this insight. Conflict we have here and the distress that conflict brings. He's speaking of this psalm. For fighting battles is one of the major motifs of the book of Psalms. It is. This is not a prayer for the non-combatant. It's not a prayer for those who are living the life of ease. It is. It, it lies, uh, uh, lost my place, and unless a person is actually engaged in hostilities, it is difficult to see how one can pray this prayer. Well, consider the reality of dark thoughts. We've all had them. And we probably had more in recent months and years than we have had even in the past. But also consider how the recounting of precious memories, the remembering of who God is, the resting in what God does, and the recalling of how God saves. That's how David faced his darkest hour. That's how we can face ours. Would you agree with me that this is a psalm for our times? A time when trust in our leaders and institutions is at an all-time low? That suspicion is epidemic in our world? Evildoers are intentionally fostering misunderstanding and division for their own purposes. This is a psalm that reveals the mindset of those who face such lies and deceptions, such moral collapse and economic uncertainty, the overthrow of institutions, and the explicit undermining of the church of Christ. And in such times as these, it is easy for dark thoughts to invade our minds and to leave us in turmoil. But it is also a psalm of hope because it sets our eyes upon Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And it shows the pathway forward through the malaise of darkness. It tells us where victory lies. It reminds us that Christ is reigning supremely. And in the tradition of the monastic movement, this psalm was prayed daily, daily, 365 days a year during the morning vigils. That at least in that tradition, it was understood that this psalm had something to say. I lay down and slept. And I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. Take that to heart. And be encouraged. Our dear Lord and Heavenly Father. 
We pray that you would enable this psalm to find its way in the depths of our hearts, that it might become, in effect, a daily prayer, that it might shape our own mindset and our heart perspective in these days, which many believe are fully able to foster darkness and discouragement. But Lord, we pray that you would lift our heads to your glory, that glory that is ours in Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.